Good evening. Glad to see each and every one out here tonight. Hope everybody had a great Easter day. Uh, I'm sure you ate a good Easter lunch, so bear with me. If you're feeling a little sleepy, just lean over on the shoulder of the person next to you and get comfy, uh, and we'll do our best to uh, study God's Word together tonight. This question on the screen has been on my mind. Last weekend, I, I was blessed and honored to get to give a short talk at our family retreat on the desire to study God's Word. Uh, do we desire to study God's Word? How should I study God's Word? How do I develop a taste for studying God's Word? These things have been on my mind as I studied for that talk. Uh, and I think we've all experienced the difficulties that come along with attempting to read the Bible. It can be a very difficult thing to do. You know, there's challenging language. There are foreign concepts culturally, uh, religiously, uh, you know, rituals that were a hundred, it feels like a hundred thousand years removed from, really just a few thousand years removed from, you know, and really just the potentially boring passages of, you know, names, places, people, kings, eras, all these different things that just don't mean a lot to us in our current day and age. But as I've been thinking about how to read the Bible, this question has helped me approach the way that I study. You know, how how, when I read the Bible, am I learning about the God who created me, the God who gave us his word? The reason that this frame of mind is so helpful, in my opinion, for studying the Bible is because no matter how alien the context that we are reading from is to us in the modern day, we know that the nature of God is the same as it's ever been. I think about the words in Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's an absolute statement, right? God does not change. The way that he works in our lives may change. His covenants may change, as we've seen in the history of man, but the nature of God is a constant. And because of that, the scriptures always have something to teach me about that nature that's relevant from the beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation. But there's actually another similar question that we can ask in our Bible reading that I think that offers a different but also fruitful perspective. And that's what does this passage teach me about myself? And by myself there I mean to say humans, people, people made in the image of God. Because you know kings come and go, technology advances, the borders of nations, they go this way and that way, and the earth itself erodes under time, but people never really change. And we're fooling ourselves if we think they do. As we look at the pages of, Bible, of the Bible, we see that people really never change. The nature of man remains pretty constant. I wish that I could paint this question in a reliable, positive light like the first one. We say, hey, the nature of God never changes, and that's a good thing. But we all know that this usually works in the opposite direction. People never change, and that's not necessarily a good thing. That means we're liable to make the same mistakes and the same bad choices as every generation that has preceded us. And those mistakes can bring us a lot of shame, there's shame that comes along with repeating mistakes, and I don't like being a person prone to sinning. I don't like being a person who's weak in some aspects, yet as I read the pages of the Bible, I find a host of people exactly like me, people that struggle with the flesh even as they do their best to follow God, and we see those examples. And so that means when I flip open my Bible, I can learn something about my God 
And I can also learn something about myself. These two questions prove that out. And I hope that's what we can do tonight, because tonight I want to look at an account that takes place in the Old Testament, because I think for most of us, the Old Testament is a little more alien, it's a little more foreign to us than the New Testament. But for the next few minutes tonight, I want to think about the God of valleys and mountains, the God of valleys and mountains, and what it means to serve a God both in the valley and on the peaks of happiness on the peaks of joy we go through different phases in our life yet God remains the same how do we deal with that how do we navigate those things I think the Bible has something to teach us about that you really couldn't give a book of the Bible a worse name in my opinion than numbers don't know if you agree with me on that or not, but if you want me to dislike a book, just name it Numbers. I hate numbers. I'm not a math guy. I don't understand numbers. It's hard for me to understand the value of them in some ways. Other people are different. You like numbers. I'm happy for you. But the thought of a book devoted to numbers really just puts me to sleep. I, I don't like the idea of that. What's funny is in the Hebrew Bible, or what I would say the original language version of the Old Testament, some of the books are actually given different names. And the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is actually called Bamidbar. I think that's already an improvement. I have no idea what that means, but it's already an improvement on Numbers. I would rather read a book called this than a book about Numbers. But what this word means in Hebrew is literally in the wilderness. I think that's a much better title than Numbers for this book because that describes what we're going to encounter in the book of Numbers. It's a book about being in the wilderness. I think it's a hundred times better. It almost sounds like an action movie or like something's going to happen in this book. Now, I don't want you to accuse me of false advertising. If you open up the book of Numbers in your Bible, you are going to find, guess what? Numbers, especially in the first few chapters, first four, really, you're going to find Several passages about the numbering of the people, followed by several passages of additional laws for the law of Moses. But as you progress through the book, what you're going to find is a story takes place with the children of Israel leaving their camp at the base of Mount Sinai. We remember they came to Mount Sinai after the Exodus. God gave them the law of Moses. He gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle that was built. He gave the Levitical code in the book of Leviticus. And now all this time later, a whole year later almost, they are going to leave the base at Mount Sinai. And trouble starts almost immediately. As soon as they leave the camp, trouble begins. As you progress through the book, you're going to see the people start complaining about a lack of food. We had food in Egypt, now God's trying to starve us. So God gives them food, and then what do they do? They complain about the food that God gave them. They complain about the manna. They want meat instead of bread. Aaron and Miriam, the siblings of Moses himself, actually speak out against their brother. And God strikes Miriam with leprosy because of it. All of these things happen that just are blows to the people of Israel. But the worst comes in lucky chapter 13, right? Because it's in chapter 13 that Moses sends spies into the land of Canaan that God is about to give them. And we know... The entire journey out of Egypt was always founded on the promise God had made to Abraham that his descendants would inhabit the land of Canaan. And in Numbers 13, Israel finds themselves knocking on the door of the promised land. It's within sight. It's within reach. And Moses sends spies to report on the quality of the land that God was going to give them. And they return with stories of a land flowing with milk and honey, 
of fields ripe with fruit. In fact, two of the men even brought back a cluster of grapes that they had to carry between the two of them on a stick, right, between their shoulders. This was a good land. It was theirs for the taking, and they blew it. They blew it because the report of Ten of those spies was that there are people living in the land. They're stronger than us, and there's no way that we can defeat them. We will never live in the land as long as they are living in it. And God heard their unbelief, and God was very, very angry. He was so angry that in Psalm 95, verse 11, it tells us that he looked at that generation of Israelites. It was such indignation that he made a promise. He made an oath. And it says that he said, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They will never enter the rest of the land of Canaan. In one of the most sad passages of the Bible, God says, turn the other direction and start walking back towards the Red Sea. You're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years before the next generation ever enters into the land of Canaan. And the time following was a bad time to be an Israelite. You had a Levite insurrection that was punished by plague and the ground literally opening up to swallow those that stood against Moses. You had the deaths of Miriam and Aaron, who was the first high priest. He dies, and they have to move on, and the whole camp mourns. You also have maybe the most extreme case, God sending out fiery serpents to bite and kill the people for complaining against him. This was a hard time to be an Israelite, and we understand that the suffering was because of sin. It was because of their sin and their unbelief, and yet we know there were those in the camp who were faithful, but they were also caught up in these punishments. They were also suffering under it. By the time the Israelites ended up in the plains of Moab at the edge of the Jordan River, they had been through the ringer, right? They had experienced all of these things. It wouldn't be hard that several Israelites believed that God was just set on destroying the entire nation, right? God's going to kill us. We're never going to cross into the land of promise. That was the perspective. But then the Bible does something really strange. And it's almost like in a movie when you have the camera on one scene and all of a sudden there's a quick cut to something completely different. I think Monty Python used to say that now for something completely different the bible does something along those lines in the book of numbers and i want to give you kind of a a little image of how it does this and why it's so strange because you see as israel is down in the flatlands in the plains of moab there are eyes watching from the hills and god gives us a little picture of a story that happens in the distance to give you a visual here what you have again this is kind of a blurry map in some ways but the gray area represents a valley and in this valley, you have, you know, at the bottom, you're going to have the Dead Sea. And flowing up above that is the Jordan River. We're familiar with that from the Bible. On this side, you have the land of Canaan. And Israel is just about to cross the Jordan River and enter into the land of Canaan. But they've been making their slow journey through the wilderness. And now, again, they've slowly made their way here to the plains of Moab. They are literally sitting in this flat land, just about to cross over the river to go into the land of Canaan. But I want you to notice this circle right here. What you see is a mountainous region right on the edge, because right there beside the plain in the valley, of course, are the mountains. They're the hills, right? And in the hills of Moab, something is happening. I think you might even see it a little bit better if I showed you this picture. This works better for me because it's the real place, right? 
you see some of the same elements here. On the right side, there's the real-life Dead Sea, the very top point of it. There's a hard-to-see squiggly line coming out of that that represents the Jordan River. Below that would have been the land of Canaan back in the day. And in this picture, we're standing on the hills of Canaan looking out. And Israel, again, has journeyed into this flat part of the land, right? The plains of Moab. They're here in this part of the land. But if you look in the back region, what do you see? The mountains, the hills, right? And God is going to give us, in a way, a side story that happens up in those hills. The camera is going to cut. We are going to move. We are going to shift to these hills. And we're going to see what happens up there while the battered and beaten Israelites are camping down in the valley. Again, despondent, perhaps, at all the suffering that they've gone through. First off, we're going to be introduced to a new character. This guy's name is King Balak. And I want to give Parker props. He said he was afraid that he wouldn't get the names right. And I want to say, buddy, we're in Gainesboro, Tennessee. None of us even get them close, right? We're just doing the best that we can. But you have King Balak, and he is the king of Moab. He's the king of Moab. We talk about the plains of Moab. We'll see... Israel had been terrified of the Canaanites since God had told them to in the land. They said, these people are going to kill us. We can't take them. Well, King Balak is terrified of the Israelites. He's afraid of the Israelites. Why was that? Because he's watched them go on a war path through his territory as they've approached the promised land. They've defeated Amorite kings. And everybody's heard the story about what happened to the land of Egypt right? Those 10 plagues, the total destruction. Everybody knows the God that the Israelites serve is a dangerous God. And now they're inside Balak's bubble, okay? They're inside his territory, and he wants them destroyed. So Balak is going to call in special reinforcements. He's going to send messengers all the way to the river Euphrates, far, far away from his land, to call on someone to help him with his Israelite problem. And the person he called was a man named Balaam, Okay, Balaam is a person that you might have heard before. When you hear the name Balaam today, you probably have one of two thoughts. One might be, huh, who is that? I've never heard of him. And two would be this. Okay, you think about Balaam and his magical talking donkey. Um, It's a very classic Bible class story, right? It's funny. It's interesting to hear about. But that's not how people thought about Balaam in the ancient world. This guy was a prophet who could get things done. And in fact, him being involved meant that it was a high-profile case. It had to be a high-profile case. We actually have archaeological evidence of Balaam's renown. There was a discovery in Deir Allah. This is in the country of Jordan. They were looking at this ancient wall, and on it they found an inscription about Balaam. I don't know if this was a help-wanted ad, if this was an advertisement for his services, but you had something that said along the lines of, this is the inscription of Balaam, son of Beor. He was a divine seer, and the gods came to him at night. Everyone knew. I mean, how is it that in Moab they know about this guy Balaam over here by the river Euphrates? They know this is the guy you go to to get things done. It would be, and this is about a 20 years rated, uh, dated reference, but if I needed a lawyer for some kind of legal proceeding, I said, I know who I'm going to get. I'm I'm going to get this guy, right? Johnny Cochran, right? The TV lawyer, the O.J. Simpson lawyer. Now, I think Balaam might have been uh, better at what he did maybe than Johnny Cochran. I don't know. But it's the essential equivalent of saying, hey, I want to get the big name, right? I want to get the guy who I know gets results. He's flashy. That's who Balaam was. So we know that Balak means business when he sends to Balaam. And notice the message that he sends. 
He says, look, a people have come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Balak wants to order a curse on the Israelites and he knows that Balaam will get results if he does this. As if the Israelites didn't have enough problems on their plate, now they have a king who has ordered the best evil prophet in the business to contract an evil invoked upon the nation. But the way that Balak describes Balaam should cause our ears to perk up when we read this. And I've underlined the part in question, right? Because he says, I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you might be reminded of the promise that God made to Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, it was there that he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The message, the God of Israel is the one who blesses and the one who curses, not Balaam. And once Balak invokes that title that power upon Balaam you can bet that the God of Israel is going to be involved because he's going to take issue with that statement well if you've heard the story before you'll know that Balaam hears the message of the king but he tells the men to hold their peace while he attempts to communicate with this Yahweh God of the Hebrews and strangely enough because this is a strange story Balaam does he goes into his tent it's night and the Lord God of the Hebrews Yahweh Jehovah speaks to Balaam and the message to Balaam is clear you shall not go with them you shall not curse the people for they are blessed in other words, God has already declared blessing upon Israel and nothing that Balaam does can change that. Now, again, put yourself in Israel's shoes. They have been ravaged by plague, by serpents, by hunger. They likely do not feel particularly blessed. But even out of their sight and mind, far away from where they can see, God is pronouncing them blessed. And he is demanding their protection from evil makes you think about when we're going through difficulty what God is doing on our behalf that we don't see that we're not aware of Israel wasn't aware and yet God is protecting them he says you shall not go Israel is blessed so Balaam shrugs his shoulders and says sorry guys I can't go back with you to Moab God says no and he shuts the door to his tent and goes about his business but then Balak sends more messengers in fact he sends princes and he sends them with even more money that money always does interesting things it does get results and Balaam the principled guy that he is remains totally steadfast right he says though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more now therefore please you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me that's integrity right there right I for all the money in the world I wouldn't go against what God says so let me ask him one more time and see if he'll tell me something different that's what Balaam says I'll see if I can get a different answer because I would love to have just a little bit of that money that you brought with you and so he goes in he goes to sleep he goes during the night and he goes to God and God does give him a different answer the second time what does God say he said if the men come to call you rise and go with them but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do 
And so God says, yeah, you can go, but you're going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam rose in the morning, he saddled his donkey, and he went with the princes of Moab. And so God is going to allow Balaam to go and speak words over the people of Israel after all, but God is going to be the one who decides what those words are. Now, if you continue on in Numbers chapter 22, then you're going to read the story about the funny donkey, right? And I, I recommend that you do. Go read the story of Balaam and his donkey. Read it to your kids. It's a great one. Uh, they, they'll enjoy it. It's got a good message. It makes Balaam look like a fool compared to a donkey, which is always enjoyable to me. But we're not going to talk about that tonight because I think some of us are familiar with it. Instead, we're going to pick up in the latter part of Numbers 22. Balaam ends up in the capital city of Moab. And, and Balak runs up to Balaam and essentially says, where in the world have you been? What took you so long? I sent my best guys and it took you this long to come. And I have to imagine Balaam just kind of looked at him and said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what just happened. But either way, you know, he comes and so Balak says, hey, you know, I, I, I'm questioning you. I, I want to know what's happened. And so Balaam tells him the truth. He says, look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth that I must speak. So Balaam says, look, I'm here, but I'm going to say what God tells me to say, and you may not like it. In fact, you probably will not like it. And so Balak and Balaam, they climb to the top of the high places where the Moabites worship Baal. Remember the picture we looked at? It would have been up in the hills, right up in the hills where they did their pagan worship, so that Balaam can look over the camp of Israel in the valley below. They offer up seven offerings of bulls and rams. They do all the necessary prerequisites here. And then Balaam goes off a distance and God meets him to give him the words of the curse that he's going to speak over Israel. And as Balaam returns and stands in the midst of the king and these princes, you can almost just imagine Balak doing this right here, right? I've got him. He came. He's about to curse them. And he's won. He's going to destroy Israel. So I wonder what he thought when Balaam opened his mouth. And what he said following this. And he took up his oracle and said, I apologize. He took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like this. Balaam declares God's judgment. Israel is blessed. They are blessed, they are abundant in number, and they are going to defeat those in the nations that come against them. The only hope left for someone like Balaam, and I believe that's what he's saying at the end, the best hope for him is just to die at their hand. Better to die at the hands of Israel than to die any other way. And I imagine that Balak picked up his jaw off the ground and put it back on his face because he couldn't believe what he just heard. And so he says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them bountifully. And what happens after this is essentially a comedy show, right? Every time he assumes that Balaam's going to do this and yet over and over and over again, he's going to be made a fool. But Balaam just shakes his head and says, 
Must I not heed what God has given me to say? But Balak isn't ready to give up, not by a long shot. So he takes Balaam to the top of Mount Pisgah. It's another mountain. He offers seven more offerings. And then Balaam has another message from God. Look what he says. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Be listening as we said at the start. What does this teach me about God? Whether we're living here in B.C. 1500 or 2023, that's true. God is not a liar. God does not change. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I received the command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It must now be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what has God done? What a statement. What has he done? What is he doing? No one can stop this. The message, God cannot change. He has made promises to Israel. He has blessed them and he will not forsake them. But note the way that God views Israel. From the ground level in Israel, they appear to be utterly depraved, constantly suffering because of sin. But in the eyes of God, what does Israel look like? He's not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Is that because they weren't sinners? No, but it's because they had been cleansed by the presence and power of God's forgiveness. So he viewed them as spotless because they were his people and he was their God. Now, at this point, Balak just looks at Balaam and says, neither curse them nor bless them, right? I don't want you to do either. Just keep your mouth shut, right? I want you to just be quiet because if you're going to do this, then you're only going to make it worse. But Balaam isn't done. He and Balak travel to the top of Mount Peor. And as the text notes that at this point, Balaam realizes that God is going to bless no matter what. And so he just, he doesn't try any incantations or spells. He just looks down at the camp of Israel in the wilderness. And it says the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And I want you to listen to what he says. It says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. You saw the picture we looked up. Did that look like an oasis there? Did it look like a garden of Eden? But Balaam looks down and says what? They look like a garden. They're fruitful. They're bountiful. God has blessed them. They're green. His hand is with them. That's what he sees out of his eye. He goes on to say, God brings them out of Egypt. He will consume the enemies. He will break the bones and pierce the arrows. Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. Balaam just repeats what God told Abraham, right? We cannot defeat them. Balak is so mad at Balaam by this point in Numbers 24 that it says he struck his hands together. Imagine being so mad that you just clap as hard as you can, right? And he says, you know, just go back to your place. Flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. And so Balaam says, but wait, I've got one more thing to say. I've got one more thing to tell you. Come this way, because I want to tell you what God's going to do to you in latter days. And it's this pronouncement that Balaam gives that's my favorite part of the story. It really almost gives me goosebumps because as Balaam looks down on the dusty wilderness there 
at the foot of the Jordan River, he speaks of things far into the future. He says, behold the oracle of Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of the tumult. As he sees this vision, he's talking about a person, isn't he? He notes that he sees a person coming. But the question again is, who is the star of Jacob? Who is the scepter that rises out of Israel? Who is the king that Balaam sees as clear as the light of day, but not yet? I don't know about your version of the Bible, but I included it here. In my version, those names are capitalized. And the hymn is capitalized. That gives us the clue, right? Because I think that distinction is correct and that Balaam, 1,500 years before the fact, is informing Balak that Israel will not be stopped because Israel is going to produce the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. That's the final message that Balaam gives up on the mountain. And because of that, he says nothing will stand in God's way when it comes to this people. Because they're the people that will bring forth the king that will save everyone. After this, Balak gives up. They all go home. Balaam goes back to his place. And the deed is done. We read passages like this in the Bible. We read long passages of prophecy. And sometimes we just shake our heads and go, I don't understand what this is saying to me today. What am I supposed to get out of this? What's the message for the modern day Christian when you read the story of Balaam and his four proclamations, his four blessings on Israel from the hills above the plains of Moab? I'm going to give you two ways that I think about this story, two ways that I think that we can gain application from it. And then the lesson will be yours. First is this, the view from the valley and the view from the mountaintop are very different things. From Israel's perspective, they were a multitude who was on the brink of extinction. God seemed to be trying to kill them. They thought all was lost and the only hope of survival was them, was the mercy of God. And and that's true. That was true in a lot of ways. But from the mountaintop, from the hills above them, far away from the ears and eyes of God's people, God was continuing to provide for them, to bless them, and to deliver on his promises to them. Today, in this world that we live in, we often find ourselves in the valley. We find ourselves in difficult times, and I don't want to be the one to tell you, but it may soon be a deeper valley than we've been in so far. It's not been a good couple of weeks It's been bad. Things are not trending in a positive direction. And it may be that soon we'll be swept up into persecution because of the sins of other people. And we will suffer and deal with the consequences of that, even at times being innocent bystanders. But if you are in Christ, if you are in his church, then God has made promises to you that no matter how deep you are in the valley, you can rest and rely on those promises. And he will not go back on them. 
I think about verses from the book of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Even when hope is in short supply, even when all feels lost, our fate is sealed and it's sealed in the blood and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We never have to worry about tomorrow or eternity as long as we find ourselves in Jesus. And finally, the hope remains the same. When you look at Israel as they, again, faced a bleak outlook, as they faced the, the trials of the wilderness, soon to be the trials of the conquest of Canaan, which would turn into the trials of the period of the judges, which would turn into the trials of the period of the kings, which would turn into the trials of going to Babylon and going to Assyria. All the things that were ahead of them to face, the hope was always the same. And that hope was that they would produce a Messiah that could save them from their sins. And that Messiah is the same Messiah that we serve today. Our hope now in this year of 2023 is the same that they found back then. And that hope is King Jesus. You know, in Balaam's prophecy, it used some pretty violent language about that king that would rise, that he would crush the heads of Moab. And it's hard for us to imagine that tying into Jesus. But that's exactly the language that's used in Psalm 2 when it talks about Jesus. It says, you shall break them with an, a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. We don't think or talk about angry King Jesus. We don't talk about punishing King Jesus. But at the end of time, that is the role that Jesus will play. He will be the avenger of his people and he will wreak havoc on those that are outside of his body. But that isn't who Jesus is to us. In this room, Jesus is not our enemy. He is not the avenger who is coming to get us. He is our friend. thought it was appropriate this morning in his invitation when Brother John said, if you want to become a friend of Jesus, because that's what response to the invitation is, is casting your lot with him. It's saying, I'll be a friend to Jesus. I'm on his side. And where he goes, I will go and I will do what he tells me to do. And he is the only friend that offers the comfort of an empty tomb. The, the, the tomb we talked about this morning, the resurrection power of Jesus. And I think about in the book of Revelation when Jesus put his hand on the shoulder of John who was trembling. He was terrified of the apostle. But he told him, don't fear. Don't, don't be afraid. I am the one who died and now I live forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades in my hand. And that's the hope, as we talked about this morning, that we all have to hang our hat on. No matter what happens in this life, no matter whether we're in the valley or on the mountaintop, wherever you find yourself, you will die. And it's only through the power of Jesus and his resurrection that we can have that hope that endures forever. So, as I leave you tonight, I don't want you to be discouraged wherever you are in life. It may seem that you're hanging by a thread. It may seem like you're in the deepest, darkest hole you've ever found yourself in. You may say, God, I don't know where you are. I don't know what to do, and I don't know what's ahead of me. 
But maybe you just need to shift in perspective. Maybe you just need to look at things differently. You might be looking up from the valley, but just for a moment, see yourself the way that God sees you if you are in Christ. Redeemed, flawless, set aside for the glory of his son. And trust that God's promises are sure and true and that he will give them to you. 